I knew Feed Me Seymour before I was like paying attention to Broadway plays. Like my parents quoted it because they like saw the movie <laughs> or saw the play. And so I would run around saying the line and just knew nothing about the play itself. Welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. We are delighted to be back early in the new season of No Script with so many scripts on the horizon to discuss. (laughs) Yes, yes. Season nine, I believe, is what we're on right now. And so far, and as of today, it's still the season of musicals. Um, (laughs) That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry, we won't do musicals the whole season. But these first two uh, conversations we've had this season have been about musicals and prominent musicals of the 1980s. The first one last week was about Sunday in the Park with George. And this week we are talking about... Little Shop of Horrors by Alan Menken and Howard Ashman. Yeah, we, we kind of hit early in this season, like two of the major musical figures, uh, you know, at least yeah. of the 20th century American theater scene. Stephen Sondheim and Alan Menken are like two of the big names. Obviously, Sondheim more than Menken, but Ma- I mean, you know, Menken's one of those names that is huge in influencing, uh, especially he goes on to do a bunch of the Disney musicals that are, you know, so define the American theater. <laughs> Right, right, absolutely. So, so like right in that time of of musicals, you have uh, um, uh, I'm blanking. I'll find it in a second. Sondheim, there we go. Sondheim uh, uh, writing musicals like big impactful musicals for the stage. Mencken is doing the same, but Mencken like kind of reboots the Hollywood. Uh, film musicals um, by by working with Disney certainly, but also by the film adaptation of the play that we're talking today. Um, there's kind of this this moment where it's like, oh yeah, we can do musicals on film, right? Forgot that. Um, and, and and Mencken so. is sort of deliberately. Um, He probably wouldn't say this out loud anymore, especially now that Sondheim has passed, but there was a a fairly big schism in American musicals happening sort of on that back end of the golden age where Sondheim was writing these musicals that are not really that melodic, like Sunday in the Park with George has awesome songs, but they're very hard to hum. You know what I mean? Like they're hard to keep the melody around. They're hard to sort of whistle to yourself as you're walking down the street. And actually, um, one of the years that Sunday in the Park was up for certain Tony Awards, a different musical won. And I think, as I recall, the story is that the guy that won took a shot at Sondheim. Like, well, the simple, hummable musical is still alive and well on Broadway, specifically referencing the (laughs) fact that Sunday in the Park with George has this really obscure score. And I mean, Little Shop of Horror and and Sunday in the Park with George are very much contemporaries and could not be more different in music style. I mean, Little Shop is highly melodic. I would call it the melodies um, sort of deliberately simple, very singable. It's hard to listen to Little Shop without singing along because you catch on so quick to what the song is. Yeah, yeah, both both just the nature of like the the solos and the duets, but also by nature of the kind of uh, genre and uh, of music that it borrows from, being the 1960s, that kind of pop rock um, sort sort of vibe, um, just super catchy, super ho- like so many hooks and and yeah, gets stuck in your head. I'm excited to get to talk about it because like this is this is. Um, 
a, a very well beloved or at least often produced play in the uh, American theater lexicon, especially of of like regional houses and community theaters getting to do a Broadway esque or an off Broadway play. Yeah, it's I mean, it's it's truly a classic of of the American theater. Little Shop of Horrors has some it's really, really cemented its place. And it, it had before, of course. I mean, I think the, the vast majority of people know what it is, even if they've never seen it. And lots and lots yeah. and lots of people have seen it at community theaters. This is a show that high schools do a lot. Colleges do a lot. Uh, it's got puppets. So it, it's very popular already before the fact that Broadway finally embraced this show and has done just a kick butt revival of it that yeah. uh, you know started before COVID and we're, we're stealing from Jackson's contact section later on but <laughs> How dare you? As, it's back and I mean it's one of the shows that's been rebooted now that the pandemic has started to wane and so they're they're kicking off this really truly a really great revival of the musical yeah, a lot of great reviews about it. I'm excited to talk about that in the context, but also just like just all the ways that this musical has kind of pervaded our culture. I remember like I knew Feed Me Seymour before I was like paying attention to Broadway plays. Like my parents quoted it because they like saw the movie <laughs> or saw the play. And so I would run around saying the line and just knew nothing about the play itself. So it's it's it works its way into our kind of cultural language. Absolutely. Well, we will have a great conversation about it coming up, I'm sure. Before we get there, we do want to ask everybody to consider heading on over to patreon.com slash no script podcast patreon.com slash no script podcast all one word no underscores no hyphens that's the easiest way to find us uh what you can do over there is become a supporter of the show we've got tremendous supporters right now folks that have been supporting us for a long time new supporters these are people who are helping make no script the podcast happen week to week while jackson and i love to do it it's a delight delightful part of our life to get to read and discuss scripts week after week. It is, it's not a free endeavor beyond just the time commitment that it takes to be able to put on a weekly podcast, new scripts every week. There's also a monetary cost to putting on a podcast like this that we just simply couldn't afford if it were not for the folks to support us over on Patreon. So big thanks to those of you who are doing that already. Again, you are making this possible. If you're not, please think about it. it the lowest tier that you can join to to become a monthly supporter is a dollar a month. It's like $12 total a year. I think the vast, vast majority of people listening to this podcast can afford that. And we really believe that at minimum, you are getting that sort of value return on the time spent with no script. A dollar a month is a great level to join at. There are higher tiers if you can afford it, if you want to support us in that way. But at that dollar a month tier, you are really contributing to making no script happen. So again, thanks to those of you who are already doing that. If you're not, please think about it. Patreon.com slash no script podcast. We'll see you over there. Yes, thank you all so much. I echo the thanks. Y'all are the best. See you at patreon.com slash no script podcast. And now, now back <laughs> to the script. <laughs> you got it. That was so close. Yeah. <laughs> all right. <laughs> All right, jumping in. I'm just going to give you a little bit of context about this play. Um, this play uh, is based on a film, actually, a 1960s kind of dark film uh, a, that is just like a like a kind of a horror drama, basically, <laughs> with some like very absurd sort of comedic stuff in there too. Um, but uh, it's it's uh, pretty much a, a lot of the content of the play is in 
that film. You have this this sort of plant that's eating people and uh, etc. But uh, when it kind of is uh, grabbed by Mencken and Ashman and and produced into the musical that we know and love, it kind of takes on a lot of the the. Uh, like severely or uh, severe is the wrong word. Very stark, dark comedy um, of of just like uh, uh, of uh, sort of hilarity in the midst of all this um, craziness. Um, the musical was uh, first produced in 1982 um, and uh, at the workshop of the Players Art Foundation, WPA Theater. Um, it ran off-Broadway at the Orpheum Theater in the Manhattan's East Village, and it stayed off-Broadway um, for five years. Um, it had a five-year run initially um, and uh, closed in November of 1987 after 2,209 performances. It was the third longest-running musical at the time. Um, so, uh, interestingly, it never uh, went on to Broadway as uh, the kind of intimate feel of the original theater. The th again, this, this production was kind of like, in some ways, there's kind of a romantic romanticism around this early production. It was off-Broadway the whole time. It was kind of bootstrapped together with set pieces from other musicals um, and kind of had this really intimate feel. Um, a small cast, again, as well, as we'll kind of talk about once we actually get into the the the, the synopsis of it. So this sort of like really intimate feel to it um, birthed the kind of culture around it. Five years of this musical running, and then it was made into a film. Now, uh, of note of those first of the, the uh, off-Broadway and then eventually the West End production that happened in 1983, um, Ellen Green uh, kind of pioneered the role of Audrey. Um, she uh, played in that that uh, that off Broadway for five years. She played in the West End, and then she played in the film as well. So, like for a long time, people's concept of the role of Audrey was defined by Ellen Green. Um, the uh, as I said, the the film uh, was made, um, and and that one starred a lot of uh, of uh, great characters. It was directed by Frank Oz, first of all. Um, a puppeteering master, so uh, of course with the giant puppet Audrey too, um, that would make a lot of sense. Um, but also it starred Rick Moranis as Seymour, Ellen Green, as I said, reprising her role as Audrey. Um, you had Steve Martin as as Orin, the dentist, um, as well as uh, kind of a cameo by uh, Bill Murray, and and uh, so so lots lots of uh, great great kind of characters float through. Some notable changes to the script on that film. Uh, I believe it ends somewhat happily with an electrocution of Audrey too. Uh, rather than the somewhat uh, tragic end for Seymour that the stage production has. Um, then then, then the play kind of enters into uh, its, like, uh, uh, pervading society phase. Uh, lots of house uh, theater, kind of local house theaters do it, community theaters do it, regional theaters do it. It's a great play for that because it's only got a handful of characters, I believe seven, maybe eight, if you if you uh, cast interestingly. Um, but uh, <laughs> but uh, so so it's it's a great uh, show for houses to do. It has a uh, oh man, there's just so many. We've got a 2003 actually Broadway, um, 2003 to 2004 Broadway production that is kind of rebooted. Um, the West End does it, a UK tour in 2009, there's an Australian tour in 2016, then 2019 is the kind of big most recent reboot of uh, of the musical. You have uh, Jonathan Groff playing Seymour, uh, you have Tammy Blanchard playing Audrey, and Christian Borrell playing the, the dentist, um, and that production in 2019 runs basically uh, from like late fall uh, 2019, right up until the pandemic ends. Um, there's uh, a number, uh, uh, there's performances as late as March 11 of 2020. So it's it's right up until it ends. Um, and it uh, that's 
Oh yes, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, right, right up until then, and then so so then that that production goes dark during the pandemic, obviously. But as Jacob said in the in the uh, moments moments before this, um, it's recently seeing its uh, return to Broadway. Jonathan Groff is no longer playing the role role of Seymour. Rob McClure is, um, but uh, it's in production now. Uh, you can get tickets now to go see it. So uh, this 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 play has lots of history. But whether you saw it in the film, saw it in your local community theaters, or in any of its various runs. It has worked its way into our theater lives, at least in America. Yeah, boy, I think I've seen it four times at various le- yep. various levels of theater. I'm trying to think. I think my, I may have seen two college productions, but also community theater and high school. High school, I mean, it's just, yep. It, it, the, this, this musical, in part because, right, there's not a lot of swearing. There's not a lot of yep. sex. The music is, I would say, although I'm not a highly musical person, but I would say the music's fairly easy to sing mm-hmm. uh, in terms of being approachable and singable by high schoolers, by college freshmen, etc. But that it has a, a level of engagement and character and fun that can be achieved the higher level of actors and directors in production that you yeah. get. It's also, I mean, similarly, of course, because uh, I guess there's an interesting connection because Mankin and Ashman go on to write a bunch of the Disney musicals, right? Where uh, famously, if you do one of the Disney musicals on stage, you typically rent the costumes from like a warehouse. So it all sort of looks the same. And that is very much the case with Little Shop. It's not that you have to, but the Audrey plant is like, you know, in all of its various forms, right? It grows throughout the play. You can just like rent the Audrey plant puppet yeah. that everybody uses. And so there actually is a very consistent look across a lot of the productions of Little Shop. Um, not all of them, of course. I've seen some very interesting production photos as we've been researching the play. But a lot of them look very similar. Seymour's in the same kind of glasses. The shop looks very similar. The puppet is exactly the same puppet every time. And that's I think that's interesting because that's not the case for a lot of theater, right? Like you look up uh, productions of any given play and the productions I think are going to look very disparate, very, you know, imagined by the group. But Little Shop is a very consistently staged musical. Yeah, yeah. No, that's interesting. Yeah, most of the time when you get a script, you kind of try to put something new on it. Um, but I think because of the the way that, and certainly that is true of this script, in certain ways, there's certain silences that different casts like to like highlight, <laughs> like the shock of Seymour the first time the plant talks or something like that. But in a play that kind of deals a little bit in nostalgia with this, you know, 1960s vibe and music, um, the the kind of distinguishedness, especially of Audrey 2 as like it's kind of, Audrey 2 in its four stages <laughs> of of, of growth is just like a consistent theme throughout. And it makes a lot of sense that there's like a rental agency to like kind of keep that running. Yeah. And like the, there are some interesting plants out there in the productions, but by the, for the most part, everybody's using like that same plant puppet across yep. all. That's just interesting to me. Okay. So little shop of horrors takes place um, in a neighborhood called Skid Row, right? This is a neighborhood of Los Angeles. And at the time that the play takes place, it's a fairly rough neighborhood. It's like downtown LA. It's really impoverished. It's really dirty. The, the, the play describes that there are, you know, sort of alcoholics collapsed and littering the stage in the neighborhood everywhere. The trash doesn't get taken care of. Um, and in this neighborhood, 
neighborhood is a, a little florist shop run by Mr. Mushnick, and he has two employees, Seymour, who is an orphan that Mushnick has taken in and uh, taken advantage of, for sure. Seymour is made to work almost all the time to uh, kind of be able to have his very minimal room and board uh, with Mushnick. He, Seymour is uh, sort of awkward, sort of nerdy, very interested in plants, very goofy, um, and very clumsy, uh, and, and that uh, that annoys Mushnick. The, the other employee is named Audrey. Audrey uh, and Seymour are very much um, attracted to each other, um, but circumstances are keeping them apart. One of those circumstances is that Audrey is dating an abusive uh, partner named Oren. Oren is, as you learn in a very funny song later in the play, a dentist, so makes a fair amount of money, but is uh, a sadist. I mean, enjoys inflicting pain and torture. That's why he became a dentist in the great song. Uh, it's just called Dentist, but I call it Son Be a Dentist, which yeah. is the song where he <laughs> describes his mother telling him as a child when he was displaying these sadist torturing tendencies that he should grow up to be a dentist he'd be very successful at that takes a little bit of a pot shot at dentists for sure it does. <laughs> yeah absolutely <laughs> uh so audrey's dating this abusive boyfriend or she comes in with a broken arm at one point with a black eye i mean very clearly he's uh abusing her the play really takes off uh, when Mushnick decides he's going to have to close down the flower shop because they don't get any customers. I mean, it's a it's a florist shop in Skid Row, uh, so nobody comes in. And in an effort to save the shop, Audrey and Seymour convince Mushnick that they should allow him to put Seymour's new plant discovery in the window. This plant is a kind of plant that Seymour's never seen before. Seymour's sort of an amateur botanist, so it does seem to be a new plant of some sort. He discovered it in a, in a neighborhood while he was searching for exotic plants during a total eclipse of the sun. This mysterious otherworldly event that brought this plant into his life life. He's named the plant because it's a new species, Audrey II. Uh, that will go on to be the plant's name throughout the course of the show. And this plant is sort of a uh, an alien Venus flytrap is sort of what you could imagine. Now, I've seen some sort of different things that don't quite look so flytrap-ish used, but the famous puppet growth thing that's used in a lot of the productions basically looks like a Venus flytrap with big viney thorns, or big yeah. thorny vines, rather. Um, and so that's sort of what you could imagine, and it typically it has lipstick on it, or, or it, like the, the coloring of the leaves around the mouth is such that it looks like lipstick. Um, so sort of, you know, big comedic kind of otherworldly. Um, and Audrey too is immediately a success. Um, and so it, 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 immediately starts attracting people in because it is a new plant and they immediately start selling flowers like crazy and so Mushnick it believes that this is sort of the thing that saved him Seymour is the thing that saves him there's some great really fun numbers both at the top of act two and early in act one as the flower shop is being restored and brought back to life the only thing is that this flower this new exotic species of plant doesn't eat traditional plant food. In fact, Seymour's struggling to keep it alive until he discovers that what it does eat, and, and a lot of people know the musical, so this is no surprise, is blood. Fresh 
human blood keeps it alive. And so for a while, Seymour keeps it alive by small cuts on his own hands and arms and feeds it the blood. And as he feeds it blood, this plant grows and grows. It grows from a small potted, potted flytrap thing to this sort of almost human-sized manipulatable puppet to this plant that takes over the stage to eventually it really does. It's in this enormous puppet thing that fills the whole stage with vines and thorns. Um, so it, it really grows enormously throughout the show, and that's why how you handle the Audrey II puppet uh, is really going to define a lot of your production. What What is it going to look like? How is it going to grow? How is it going to become more menacing throughout the play? Um, eventually, the it's such a success. Uh, he's Seymour is getting interviews with radio shows. He's becoming sort of a, a famous character in and of himself. He's getting paid a bunch. Mushnik decides that hey, uh, I really need Seymour to keep my flower shop alive, so I'm going to adopt you in a sort of uh, manipulating uh, their relationship and Seymour's reliance on him to keep Seymour around. Um, and then the plant demands enough blood that Seymour can no longer keep up with the output. It's grown to an enormous size. Seymour cutting his own hands and arms is not going to be able to feed it enough blood. So there is a great song, uh, Feed Me Seymour. It's the song, if you know it. Um, and the, in in the song, the, flat, the, the plant, Audrey 2, basically makes the case that you're going to have to go kill someone and feed me the body over a, a lot. You know, you can parcel it out so that it feeds me for a while. But that's basically the only way forward. Well, of course, Seymour is not p- pleased about that. He's not an inherently evil human being. He doesn't really want to kill somebody to feed him to a plant. The plant tries a bunch of different tactics trying to convince Seymour of all the different things it can give him fame and money and cars and all of this stuff. And eventually, of course, Audrey, the human, will, the plant says, will, you know, fall in love with him and want to be with him. Uh, and all of this is, you know, it's de- tempting to Seymour, but maybe not pushing him over the edge. But what eventually does is that Seymour sees Orin uh, physically abusing Audrey sort of through the shop window, hitting her and calling her a slut and all of this stuff. Um, and in one of the great lines of the musical, the plant sings, that guy sure looks like plant food to me. <laughs> and th- so Seymour makes his decision. He's going to kill Orin, the dentist, Audrey's abusive boyfriend, as a way to protect Audrey and also as a way to get the the, the food for the plant. So Seymour goes to the dentist. Uh, this sadistic, evil dentist is going to strap him to the chair and do all this terrible stuff to his mouth as Seymour's deciding whether or not to kill him. Seymour's got a gun. And eventually Seymour decides, I can't do it. I can't shoot him dead. And at that moment, uh, the Orin, the dentist, who's addicted to like his own laughing gas, Uh, suffocates on his laughing gas and Seymour doesn't save him and that's how the first death happens Seymour takes the plant uh, the body back to the plant and starts to feed it out over a number of days that's end of act one the first murder the first feeding the plant a whole human body you can imagine how big the plant is at this point to be able to devour whole humans Um, the the plant keeps getting bigger both in fame and and in what it's offering Seymour in terms of money and and affluence um, and and prestige prestige, uh, and also in terms of its size, Mushnik eventually de- decides or figures out what's gone on. Uh, he's called into the police because the, his, there's a Mushnik, uh, 
florist sort of thing left at the dentist office. So that tips him off. And then he sees that Seymour and Audrey do eventually get together uh, with Oren out of the picture, mysteriously vanished. Audrey and Seymour have a lovely ballad, Suddenly Seymour, where they realize their affections for each other and they kiss. Mushnik sees that and realizes Seymour probably killed the dentist. He doesn't yet know about the plant, but he knows that the dentist mysteriously disappeared. Seymour's hat was left at the dentist's office. He's seen blood on the floor of the shop and he finds the dentist uniform in the trash can outside the shop he puts it all together he's gonna go to the police and seymour feeds mushnik to the plant whole now we're no longer feeding individual body parts and blood we're feeding whole humans to the plant so he feeds mushnik to the plant in order to keep the uh the the keep it down, keep keep the secret. Now he's starting to get more and more offers. The actor playing Orin comes back as a number of different sort of, there's a book tour, there's a TV show, there's the cover of Life, all these different sort of agents who want to put him um, up front and personal in the, uh, in, the, in the world. And at that time, Audrey comes back and sort of through an accident um, ends up getting eaten by the plant herself. Seymour has decided to kill the plant, notably. He's decided He's not going to take this fame and fortune. He needs to end this plant instead of doing all that. Great choice, Seymour. Unfortunately, while he's out of the shop, Audrey, by accident, puts herself in a position to be consumed by the plant. Seymour rushes in just as it's happening and manages to pull her from being, like, swallowed whole by the plant, but she's so injured that she passes away. And her in her dying song, she asks Seymour to feed her to the plant so that she can be part of his life forever, be part of the thing that's bringing him so much fame and fortune so after she's passed Seymour feeds her body to the plant at that point another opportunity comes along a scientist comes and says or a, a marketer or some, you know some sort of business person comes along and says we're going to take cuttings of Audrey too we'll pay you a bunch of money and it will take cuttings of Audrey too and send them all over the world everybody can have their own Audrey too and Seymour realizes this was your plan you're going to take over the world aren't you and he tries to kill the plant through a variety of means nothing works so he finally grabs a machete and hops into the plant to try to stab it from the inside but Audrey too swallows him whole and spits out the machete and in the song's final conclusion the Audrey two cuttings are taken sent all over the world and the the ensemble sings uh the sort of big moral lesson don't feed the plants as uh, Audrey, we get these sort of news updates from the chorus uh that the Audrey twos are indeed taking over the world and eating human beings whole and that is the end of little shop of horrors there you go yeah yeah so so yeah it's it's a a delightful comedic dark uh uh romp through some pretty big themes i i i we're gonna get into kind of our normal thing almost certainly that we do where we talk about like big themes and character arcs and stuff like that. But it's worth noting, I think at the start of this one, because normally we do this at the end where we realize, oh, we didn't talk at all about like how funny and goofy it is. This musical like demands that you laugh at some like, like really dark themes. You're feeding people to a plant. <laughs> Um, and, and like the, but, and, and yet the way that these characters embody themselves kind of draw that laugh out of you, whether it's through the songs and the kind of absurdity of it and just the way that the, the melodies work or the just sort of, uh, odd juxtaposition that they're put in of this living plant talking to them. There's just so many moments where a, a laugh is kind of pulled out of you, even in the midst of like some pretty shocking, uh, themes. 
Yeah, well, it, it's just hilarious. I mean, the, the characters are so big and exaggerated. I mean, it certainly feels like like an older genre of material that you're engaging, where the exaggerated characters are unrealistic. I mean, just total. I mean, the dentist character, right? Orin is this horrible sadist dentist who's proud of it and is singing these big, crazy numbers. Seymour is like almost unbelievably goofy and clumsy and awkward. And, and, and Audrey is this sort of, uh, you know, honestly, sort of a, sort of a sexist, uh, is picture of this sort of abused woman with a heart of gold that falls in love with the main character. And, so you you I think immediately your instinct is to sort of say oh this is this is odd and exaggerated but you just fall into the way the characters talk and sing to each other and the driving score and how quick the action moves uh, that it, it overwhelms you and you just end up enjoying the fact that we're living in this heightened world and in this heightened reality plants talk and characters do things that are exaggerated but also hilarious and and the writing of the 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 book to the to the music the lyrics is so good that it it just it just pulls you in in this sort of strange strange way that truly has defined little shop's success yeah there's 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 some pretty significant underpinnings of this play that like allow it to do that um you have the sort of archetypal almost like commedia del art sort of like uh character types of these people and yes some of them are dated and that's that's a that's that's a issue that the play has been trying to work on um even as as recently as the last the 2019 um production um uh, the, the the role that Ellen Green kind of uh, uh, premiered as as uh, Audrey kind of didn't hit the same way. So uh, Tammy Blanchard did some things with the role, and I imagine she's continuing to kind of uh, continue with it and adapt it. But but even so, the 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 dentist being that reprehensible of a person is a necessary archetype to be the foil for that because he needs to be the first one that justifies Seymour killing because Seymour is not a killer really um in that first scene especially even even the multiple times that people end up dying he doesn't like push them in necessarily um but he does allow this horrible person of the dentist to die um uh by at his own hand essentially he doesn't save him he doesn't push Mushnik in but he says that he put all the money from the cash register inside of Audrey and kind of relying on Mushnik's greed to to uh kind of pull him into the plant so you have these sort of you need these archetypes in order to kind of push um Seymour further along this path of of the of <laughs> depravity I don't know of murder that the plant is like pulling him into yeah well and and it's it's the way that the show plays with these I would almost call them American archetypes that really works right this uh f- for example the the jerk abusive boyfriend right is is a overwhelmingly reoccurring character and what does the musical do with it they turn it into a way to make fun of dentists i mean it just right. just that additional little twist to bring a sort of comic uh 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 perspective a little extra layer just to just to make it something where the character is not just this this thing that we've seen before yes but also this sort of um Everything about it is terrible, and everything about Oren is terrible, but the musical finds a way for us to 
to to laugh at it honestly and and it's us our ability to laugh at it or or see more the same way right this this nerd this awkward goofball character what does he end up having to do kill people I mean, the awkward nerd, you know, goofball doesn't like put on some new outfits and go to the prom and get the girl like in every other teenage romantic, whatever. (laughs) He has to kill people to get his fame and fortune. So it's the slight twists on not what is expected, but on um, these sort of models for characters and how they interact with each other. Yeah, and and in that way, it kind of relies again on a very a very old thing. Um, this kind of like, what would you do to change your situation? What would you and then what would you do to hold on to your situation once you have changed it? And that way, a, a lot of people have compared this to the the Faustian myth of Faust kind of making a deal with Mephistopheles to get more fame, more power, and then what the 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 lengths that Mephistopheles pushes Faustus to go to to hold on to it. It's very similar. It's 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 a kind of a new new uh, twist on that kind of old myth of of like yes what if there was a way for you to what what if you could change your fate what if you could like <laughs> <laughs> what if you could like in a day switch everything about the what the bad things about your life that you don't like and get rid of awful people because surely surely they're more awful than you um like so and then but then like the reality of of the lengths that you would go to hang on to it makes you realize oh no what if what if i am that awful it's a, it's a kind of a classic almost parabolic tale yeah, well, I think the other sort of more ancient structure that you could look for in Little Shop of Horrors is like a Greek tragedy. Yeah, I mean, very much right. This this play has a chorus, uh, a trio of of these uh, singers that sort of parade throughout the show, and they they both they serve in a very interesting way as the chorus in the sense that they're they are characters in some of the scenes, sort of observers who live on Skid Row. They help advertise the flower. They talk with the characters as characters, but then they also serve a sort of otherworldly role of commentating on the action. They sing backup for the flower, which is not does not make any sense for them. It never seems to be that the characters that these three chorus play uh, in the in the dialogue they don't seem to know about the flower killing, but they're the backup singers for Audrey too. So they serve this sort of dual role of observer and commentator like a Greek chorus does. Seymour, as a sort of Greek tragic hero, right, takes on this one thing that collapses not only his life, but the life of everyone around him. The tragic consequences befall the people that he loves, and then, of course, finally him at the end. Yeah, yeah, the the the, the kind of uh, his own uh, the manifestation of his greed or the manifestation of his choices is what consumes him in the end. And and uh, yeah, no, absolutely the kind of like etherealness. I love I love the uh, the chorus of uh, Chiffon, Crystal, and Ronette that just kind of float through the different scenes. Will pop in in mo- a lot of times to uh, really comedic effectiveness. Will pop into a scene as like backup singers uh, on the theme of whatever the song is about um but the way that they move through it kind of definitely brings in those sort of like classic greek themes perhaps in the stage version at least the world isn't necessarily better off at the end when the tragic hero goes away because now the world is filled with audrey twos but you do kind of get a very comedic version of catharsis at the end. You have the kind of pity and 
fear of like, you know, what would you do if you could like, you know, have have your one big break? Um, but it meant having to do some of these sorts of things. Um, uh, the kind of final song has like, there's so many jerks around the world who are willing to feed these like little Audrey twos blood. So don't feed the plants. Um, so it's it's kind of calling calling to mind that sort of pity fear warning about like what what would you do if you could do this? And the the that warning at the end of the play, don't feed the plants. I just find it so effective because it it's simultaneously really on the nose. Right. right. I mean, it's not subtle in the sense that it, it, it it's very much, you know, a, clearly a commentary on what Seymour did throughout the play. But at the same time, it doesn't come right out and say it right. There's no uh, interpretation for the sake of the audience where the characters sing about how, you know, the plants are really a metaphor for fame and money and getting the things that you want. And when you feed them with the pain and suffering of you know, whatever, however you want to describe the theme of right. the musical. There's lots of variations on that idea. What are you willing to sacrifice for what you really want out of life and things like that? So they don't come out and explain it. So it's it's at once uh, not subtle at all in the way that the rest of the musical is. Nothing about this musical is subtle. So it's it's not subtle at all. So it fits in the world of the musical. And at the same time, it has an additional layer that is, you know, for the moment after the play. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't like lock in one specific thing, which it which allows you to allows it to play in a, in in a lot of different decades, right? So like when like the the story at least starts in the you know 1960s with with this sort of film that's done that has a lot of kind of fear 1960s a lot of fear about like scientific advancement and what everyone is experimenting on. So the kind of danger of of science, you know, let let to run loose you know what sort of terrible things could happen if we let that happen and and you know i imagine now um a more compelling question is like you know what happens when you get your big break what's what's what do you get when you get like instantly famous and how how to hold on to that that would be a that would be a theme that's really prevalent now same same sort of plot same sort of uh kind of core elements but vastly different applications that can kind of survive cultural more cultural moments, at least within the context of a capitalist society, where where that kind of question is always asked, like, what if I make it big? What if I succeed tomorrow? Um, and so, 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 so it keeps being able to speak into that culture no matter the decade. Yeah, well, and and it it both of the characters that are kind of at the center of it all, Audrey and Seymour, get. Uh, their I want song, right? Musicals like this and a lot of the Disney musicals that Mankin goes on to write are what have really crystallized the kind of classic musical structure, uh, the world establishing song, the I want song, the big choice for the character at the end of act one. I mean, these are all things that like are classic musical structure. And the I want song in this musical is the big number about Skid Row down on Skid Row. And both Audrey and Seymour sort of sing about this escapist, 
if I could only get out of here to get out of here, right? And and <laughs> the idea of leaving their uh, circumstances behind, these things that are trapping them in this place where, you know, for Audrey, the, the only people that I can be in relationship with are people that uh, hurt me. Uh, for Seymour, right? I was left by my parents. I don't have any real familial connections except for this guy who uh, takes advantage of me and makes me work all the time in order to pay my bills. And if I could only escape these circumstances, my life would be better. And I think what's interesting is that the Audrey 2 plant, what it offers to Seymour and, and through Seymour to Audrey is not an escape from Skid Row. I wonder if there is a a level to which this musical is also partly about um, giving, you know, what, what it is to get things in the short term that are satisfying but are not what you ultimately uh, need, question mark. But I, I just mm. think it's interesting that the plant isn't like, hey, we should go tour the tour the world and get you out of here and we're gonna go find a different shop and in fact the opportunity comes around that seymour could potentially take this plant to a bigger shop or somebody mentions him that and get out of skid row literally and immediately mushnik swoops in and re-traps him back through this manipulative father-son relationship song mushnik and son so it's they don't get out of skid row right i mean literally despite all the things that that seymour has offered and through seymour Audrey, the thing that they sing about in the I Want song to get out of Skid Row is not one of those things that happens for them. Yeah, and that's pretty consistent across all of the characters. Like, if you think of the four characters, they all kind of have an I Want. They all kind of have, like, I agree that Audrey and Seymour kind of have the two biggest ones and the ones that we focus on the most. But Mushnick wants to, like, you know, be successful and not have to worry about not, not have to worry about bankruptcy anymore. <laughs> Orin has problems and wants bad things, um, and he doesn't get them. <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, consistently, the like the kind of net that is, or the the web really that is weaved by Audrey two denies them things while uh, kind of promising. Promising, 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 but uh, never fully coming through on the ultimate dream. And that way it's kind of like, again, another archetype of the devil at the crossroads sort of thing where, you know, you get something that you think you want that you think is going to lead you to the thing that you ultimately want. But it's at the cost of something much greater and for you to never reach that end goal. Um, So you so you have that sort of like consequences of feeling good for a little bit. Versus like like uh, the the possible future um, and and the sort of good things in the future. Yeah, and and this this really oppressive environment that the play sets them amidst um, is almost an antagonist in and of itself. Ooh, I mean, yeah. the, the pl- this play is sort of odd in that like who is Seymour fighting against? Uh, it, it it's it's it Seymour makes some decisions across the course of the play. Largely, they're decisions to uh, first to not save the dentist by way that that of course it, it really is his way of murdering him, and then by tricking Mushnik into joining the plant. And then I think another crucial decision is to feed Audrey's body to the plant. And then in, in that moment, I think he decides to continue to let the plant be alive only until. He is, his mind is changed 
again by the fact that the plant is going to spread all over the world and take over humanity and 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 blah 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 right but it's interesting that a lot of those decisions are not made in uh in pushing against another person right it's uh, what seymour's goal is what exactly you know it's it's a little nebulous to me it, he he's a little reactive to me of a character uh for a sort of traditional protagonist yeah definitely he's definitely taken advantage like easy to be taken advantage of by audrey too um and i think partially that's due to his like a lot of times the choices that he's trying to make are to try to uh because because he loves audrey um, not an Audrey too. Um, so, so you have these, uh, uh, multiple times kind of later on, especially, I think it's like act two ish area where the sort of ramifications are starting to, to kind of land home and the choices that he's getting are tied to his ability to continue to keep Audrey two alive. Um, the question is, will Audrey still like me if I don't have this success? Um, and, and, uh, that, that of course is like kind of, uh, there, there is a, there is a moment where he manages to ask her that question and it just comes a little too late because she says, yes, of course I'd like you if that never happened. And then he kind of reveals the lengths to which he went, <laughs> uh, to, to kind of accomplish what is, what has come to. And so you again, get that sort of tragic, like, like getting like what you think it takes to get what you want ends up making the thing that you want inaccessible to you. Um, to the point that uh, the, the the thing that you have to do removes <laughs> like the, the removes Audrey from the equation. The thing that the, keeping Audrey two alive kills Audrey. Um, so so it's it's this again a beautiful sort of tragic uh, uh, net that that gets put around Seymour, who I agree doesn't have the sort of um, heroic strength of 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 a of a creon or something like that um, and I, but. I do think that that's intentional and it's intentional all the way back to the original little shop of horrors horror movie there's a great quote from the guy who created that original little shop of horrors and it was originally going to be about a vampire and things kept changing and he had he, he's this famous b-movie horror director and he has uh he says in an interview a real um uh, opposition to the sort of traditional hero, this sort of take action, brave, step in, change the world, fight the bad guy sort of hero. And his opposition to that produces a quote unquote hero like Seymour. And I, I think Seymour's almost an anti-hero. And I don't mean that in the way that we traditionally mean that, where he's like, he is the villain that is also... Like although, <laughs> uh, to be honest, he is killing <laughs> people, so that kind of yeah. works. But what I really mean is that he's like the opposite of a traditional hero. He's weak. <laughs> he's yeah. uh, a klutz. He he doesn't ever really, uh, you know, make a big decision to get... It's all in the moment, like, what am I going to do? Really, the most heroic decision he makes, I think, is to save Audrey from her abusive boyfriend by going to kill him. But then he doesn't do it. He doesn't. Yeah, he doesn't do it. <laughs> so he, he's this sort of odd hero for us to follow. And truthfully, it gets a little hard in the musical to wrap your arms around Seymour as the character that you're you're really following and rooting for because all of the decisions that you'd sort of hope to root for that he has to make are like decisions that you're like, I don't know, man. You really want to kill him and feed him to a plant? <laughs> 
<laughs> yep. Yeah, no, it's 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 kind of I think deliberately blown up um uh to to uh crazy proportions where it's like what I like I could never imagine myself doing that. Um <laughs> uh, but which is interesting cuz like the I think I don't know, these 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 last two plays, it's interesting to think about the two the two plays together that we've talked about, A Sunday in the Park with George and A Little Shop, because they're both kind of have these themes of what artists need to do to survive. A lot, you know, a number of these, you know, it's it's easy easy to wonder if some of these playwrights are kind of working out some of the angst um, from having come up and trying to make it in theater, because there's this there's this question of how hard do you push um, before you lose yourself. Um, and both of them, George, uh, the, the 19, uh, the, the later on George from Sunday in the park with George is like pushing himself, pushing himself, pushing himself, trying to make connections so much so that he can't do his art. Um, Seymour is pushing himself, pushing himself, pushing himself to try to keep this plant alive so that he can maybe get out of here so that he can maybe have the life he wants. Um, and yet it's all taken from him in the end. So you kind of have, it's interesting. Fascinating. I, I truly don't know if I've ever heard that reading of Little Shop before, but I think it's an interesting one. The idea of it as a sort of metaphor for for creation and yeah. although again i think menken is quite proud of his disney musicals uh it, it is sort of interesting and this this of course came before it all but it is sort of interesting to think in terms of like his life and career that like you sort of wonder sometimes does he wish he had done uh more serious work although he ends up having a really profound um impact on 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 the world i mean the, the disney musicals are as popular as anything most other playwrights and musical writers even sondheim ever possibly did but you know did he feed the plant a little <laughs> <laughs> It is a question, right? And it's the question that, you know, that's that pretty directly is what the musical is asking at the end. Will you like this, 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 it almost has, it, it kind of turns the plant into an idea or a framework that is saying this is already out there in the world. This like there is, there is something asking for you to do something in order so that the thing that you want could maybe come to you, no matter what brand of life that is. I think that's a pretty universal emotion, even though it may have sounded convoluted when I say it, um, the, this, this sort of like desire to get just another step further and change your circumstance is out there. And what are you going to do? Are you going to like, are you going to, are you going to, you know, pay the price to the devil at the crossroads? Are you going to, are you going to, you know, push for it, even though uh, it might hurt you or people around you? Um, and, and, and the, the kind of plea that it says is don't do that. Don't feed the plant. <laughs> Well, and, and both of the decisions I think that he has to make along that road, or, or the first two at least, are um, – I think they are more the, – the way that the decision comes about is more relatable than the, the plant story, right? I mean I think yeah. you, you said earlier like it's hard to imagine me ever doing that, like feeding people to a plant. And that's part of the story, right, is this totally unimaginable circumstance that at its core has these sort of little things that, that – kind of kind of reach out right so you know he 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 doesn't want to murder somebody to feed him to a plant right but then he he sees the girl that he loves being uh you know beaten up by her jerk abusive boyfriend and he decides you know i could i could maybe be a hero in that circumstance and get what i want and then it ends right. up that he's able to just sort of hold his hands up and say well i you know i didn't save him does that mean i murdered him and then the 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 mush when mushnik is 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 gonna turn him over right it's one of those things that all happens so fast the decision yeah. has to happen so fast it's never like along the way he's like i'm gonna 
going to become a guy who feeds people to plants to get what right. I want. It's a yeah. series of little decisions that he makes that are, again, I think sort of reactive for a protagonist character, but their reactiveness is part of the story, I think, where it's like he never makes an active forward decision to become the plant you know, feeding murderer. But in these series of small reactive decisions, he ends up being that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in that way, you know, even as the circuit or the, yeah, the circumstances are blown out of proportion to the, to the astute person <laughs> you might, you, who's, who's there to kind of let theater both delight and instruct you. Um, the, 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 this, this play kind of asks the questions like, have you already made those choices? Are you already kind of like, let just the little tiny bit of difference because yes, the ridiculousness of feeding someone to the plant is, is like never, never would do that. But you know, if you actually took a second and think there's someone, you know, in the whole globe that you're like, you know, the world would be a little better if I fed that person to a plant. <laughs> so, so it kind of like, kind of makes like it, it brings it just that little tiny bit closer. The absurdity allows the space to ask a sort of interesting question of yourself and what, you know, what, what to guard against what you're capable of. And yeah, the, I think it, you're right. Totally right. It's the absurdity that helps it all because I, we're not expecting these characters. I don't think to make, uh, realistic choices. I think they make earned choices in the context of the absurdity yeah. of the show. I'm not saying I don't think their choices are earned, but they're not like human choices. I, I think that right. Megan and yeah. Adam would probably be mad at me for saying that, but I just mean that they're <laughs> not, they, they, the choices that the characters make in the show are part of the exaggerated world of the play. And because of that, we buy in. And I think it's only when you sort of take that thousand foot view at dinner afterwards or whatever, where yeah. you realize there's something parabolic about the play, about the the, the feeding of your, your secret inner wants uh, and the expense that that might have on the world around you. This has been uh, this has been the conversation pretty much. This is a great play for those conversations. You know, this uh, in some ways this was the like you know after afterwards opera opera going out to like get, get a drink and talk about the show. It's a great show for that because you have a great time while you're there, and then you leave and you're like, oh oh themes and, and can kind of like dwell in the play a little bit longer. Fortunately, this conversation doesn't have to stop, even though we're out of time. We'd love to keep talking about Little Shop of Horrors with you. Now, now listen, oftentimes I will say, maybe some of you have been in this play or seen this play or whatever. And I'm like, there's no way anyone's ever seen or been in this play. Uh, <laughs> and, and that just because of either the obscurity of the play or because it's a new play on Broadway or something like that. But this play, I guarantee that there's at least like 30 of you um, who have seen this play or have been in this play and have read this play or just interacted with it in some way. It's a great show. We'd love to keep talking with you all out there in the social media realm. We're on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at the username at NoScriptPodcast. We also have a Gmail, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. Find us on any of those sites. We'd love to keep talking about Little Shop of Horrors with you. Absolutely. If you've liked this episode or any of our other episodes, you can pass this podcast on to your family and 
friends. Tell them about the show. Tell them about an episode you liked, a script you know they like. If you know folks that like theater, that like plays, reading, whatever, stories, this is a great show for them. Send them our way. We're so appreciative. You can send them to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Podbeam where we're hosted. And also YouTube now. We are up on YouTube. You can find us there. Just search No Script the Podcast. And we're slowly getting the kind of lexicon of all of our previous podcasts up onto YouTube. So eventually be able to access all of the shows there. Um, So keep an eye out for that if that is your platform of choice. And keep an eye out for next week when we're talking about another script. Until then, I am Jackson Nikolai. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us for No Script the Podcast.